Let's talk about the holidays that Constantine wanted to separate everybody from. Now, last week was a bit uncomfortable for some people just because it's church history and it's never very pretty. Um, we talked about supersessionism and, you know, the past and the divorce and the separation. There's another slide that says supersessionism. I'm going to let you guys listen to what I'm saying and follow through those slides just like that. I'm not going to talk about them. I'm not going to read them. I'm not going to do any of that. So if the slides are helpful, they are. If not, don't worry about it. Last week, the separation, supersessionism, the church replaces Israel. Everything Israel did is gone and bad. We don't do that anymore. Now, we stopped early, like in the fourth century, but this continued. John Calvin, Martin Luther, it went on, supersessionism and replacement theology, which interestingly is exactly how we have still arrived at a place today where most Christians have zero connection to the biblical festivals. But today we're going to get to the good part. I told you last week wasn't fun. This week is the reconnection. This is looking at the shadow caster that Colossians and Paul's words talks about when we say that the body is Messiah, Colossians 2. We'll talk about that scripture in a minute, but I, I told it to you misquoted, misquoted as, or mistranslated as it is in many of your Bibles. But Colossians is, if you remember, Paul is helping people to feel good about the, the, the festivals. So today we move into phase three, Messiah and the Feast of Israel. What that means for Israel, what it means for the nations, what it means for the whole wide world. And yes, this, as I've said, is very introductory material. It's very if you've, if you've been around Messianic things for, for very long, you're familiar with a lot of these things. But as I've said, and I quoted it this way, we are not alone. There are a lot of people who don't know these things. And our big mission here, to borrow from First Fruits of Zion's Messianic teaching for Christians and Jews. That's what Shalom Macon does as a primary goal. That's one thing. There are others. Anyway. This is relevant. This is relevant. It is all of the festivals, as we've already reviewed, connected to the land, the people, uh, the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel. The festivals are agricultural on some level. They are religious observances. That's the people. They are taken from the Torah. That's the scriptures. But they are most definitely connected to the Messiah of Israel. That is a certainty. He celebrated them. As Paul points out, he is found within them. The body is the Messiah. Death, burial, resurrection, and return. And to this, I want to add one other very important Pauline text, which is my favorite text for our community, Ephesians 2, when Paul basically goes and says to Ephesus, listen, you guys had nothing before Yeshua. Why? Because you were separated from Israel. And Israel is God's people. You had nothing. But God has brought you near through Messiah to the promises of Israel in a particular way. That text is vital. Why? I'm not one for math, really, but I do remember the transitive property. It goes something like this. If the festivals are for Israel, and Ephesians 2 says... That the nations become, in essence, a part of Israel, then by the transitive property, the festivals are for the nations, right? 
So we need that text to provide that mathematical equation for us. That's what that does. And Paul says, you are connected. So you are connected to the feast. So let's go. Sabbath, number one. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Sabbath, but it does Sabbath, English, Shabbat in Hebrew, to cease. Okay, that's not really the focus of today. I will come back to it. But the Sabbath is the number one first festival listed in Leviticus 23. It's also a, it's also one of the Ten Commandments. It's a very, very, very big deal. It is, as the scriptures confirm, the first thing that God called holy. Did you know that? His Shabbat is the first thing that he called holy. And it is not optional it is a commandment to honor and observe the Shabbat. Does that mean you have to do it like Orthodox Jews if you're not even Jewish? Of course not. But you should observe and honor the Sabbath. That's a biblical commandment. It is the number one first mentioned feast in Leviticus 23. It represents something. It represents a time of total peace and communion with God. Adam and Eve had it for less than a day. Well, they didn't even, they didn't quite do that. They, they had it for a short period of time, Adam and Eve. The garden communion, okay? Shabbat is supposed to be a foretaste of that. And all of the festivals are ultimately pointing us to a return to the garden, to resting, to ceasing, to being in communion with God. So we can never minimize Shabbat and its massive importance. But let's move into the festivals themselves. Passover, first fruits, Shavuot or Pentecost, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Sukkot, Shmini Atzeret, the Feast of Tabernacles and the, and the Special Gathering. These are spring and fall divisions. Now it's a little, it's a little bit confusing because first fruits is... Mm, not really a festival. It's, it's, it's recognized. It's part of Leviticus 23. There's not a huge thing that we do for that, but there's a messianic significance. So really, probably Shmini Atzeret should be on that list, which comes after Tabernacles, but that was the slide I found, and I didn't feel like changing it. Passover. Ready? Passover. Unleavened bread. First thing we need to understand is that in most culture today, Passover is considered to be this whole set of days that are part of eating matzah. Pesach is not Passover. Pesach is the offering of the lamb. It is the Passover sacrifice. Pesach is the 14th of Nisan. The Feast of Unleavened Bread runs from the 15th to the 21st. Now we're not going to get into doubling of holidays in Judaism. That's another whole lecture. But Passover is really Pesach and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we have a ton of scripture that I'm not going to read for you. But in the first month on the 14th day, I'm not going to read it. So let me read it to you. In the 14th, <laughs> it starts on the 14th. And what is it? The Lord said to Moses in the land of Egypt, this month, Nisan, will be the beginning of months. And we all sort of know what Passover is, but I'm going to talk about that spiritually. But a couple of things happened. 
They're going to take the sum of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses on which they eat it. It is whose Passover? Hashem, the Lord. It is the Lord's Passover for which I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike. So God's doing these things on his Passover. But here's this gem not to be missed. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. What is Passover to Israel? An opportunity to eat stale cracker bread and very hot horseradish? Those are a couple of the commandments. Those are things you must do. But no, that's not what Passover is. It is a recollection of redemption, salvation, and deliverance. It is a time of great joy. And those words that I just mentioned represent four cups of wine that are in our modern Seder, each raised with a specific meaning. And those cups are drawn from the biblical text in Exodus 6, where we have these four cups. Right? I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. The first cup, the cup of sanctification. The cup of deliverance, I'll deliver you from slavery. The cup of redemption, the third cup after dinner, Yeshua will come back to that. I will redeem you. And the cup of hope, or I will take you to be my people. So the message of Passover, very clearly, is the by the blood of the Lamb and a miraculous action of God, people were delivered, sanctified, redeemed, right? And they have hope. Passover is so important that it is the first holiday that the Jewish people celebrated in the land. Who led the first Passover, David? Joshua. In Joshua 5, it's mentioned specifically, they go into the land and they celebrate the Passover. And the day after Passover, they eat the produce of the land. That's very significant for another message. For anyone who wants to debate when the, when the uh, Omer count begins in Shavuot, but we won't go there. With this in mind, I want to ask you a question. The deliverance, the salvation, the redemption, the sanctification. Is it hard to imagine then that if God were going to send a Messiah to the people of Israel that he might do it in conjunction with this holiday? Is that, is that a stretch? Is that difficult to go to? I don't think it is at all because that is exactly what happened. The season of redemption, right? Messiah comes, dies, and resurrects all through this time period. And that's the most significant event for Gentiles. That's, that's how you came in. And do you remember what Constantine said to you Gentiles last week? Don't do that. I don't want you to have anything to do with that. You get away from that Jewish stuff. Don't do it. 
He also said that about the Shabbat. I don't want you doing anything like that. You should actually be working on that day. And we're going to move this thing to Sunday. But for Passover, he said to the early church, and others did, unfortunately, not all. And as Chris and I have been talking, there are a number of church fathers who had a firm understanding of the fact that Passover mattered to the nations. However, what ended up settling in is that the early church, who should have allowed communities to continue in the celebration and remembrance of Passover tied to Messiah, outlawed it, said you're anathema, you're cursed if you're doing these Jewish things. Okay? We talked about that last week, so I don't want to go back there. But without the historical and theological significance of what God had done on prior Passovers, you miss the full beauty of Jesus as Paul's metaphorical Passover lamb. You cannot disconnect them. That's the story. And so worse yet, if we allow the, the history to be rewritten, written over, replaced, we miss that message entirely. So Yeshua and the Passover. Here's what, here's what most of the world thinks of Yeshua and the Passover. Look at these fine, fine Italian uh, toga-wearing multicolored dudes. And while I, don't, while I don't, there are so many problems with the passion of the Christ... This image is appropriate and looks like what a Seder really looked like for Yeshua. Okay? We have clearly demonstrated Yeshua and his followers were Jews. They're connected to, or commanded to, celebrate the festivals, Passover being one of them. And nowhere... Nowhere can we look and find an abrogation of the Passover or any other biblical festival. Or especially the creation of new days to celebrate. Now, caveat, uh, uh, what's, what's the word? <sighs> nuance, nuance. Sunday became a very specially recognized day. Why? Obviously, because of the resurrection. But that never, never, ever changed what had been. And that's the beauty. You know, there's a connection to Yeshua and all of them and, and all of the aspects of the things that he did. And he was upholding and affirming the plan, the purpose, and even the calendar of God. The most famous scripture in the world, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved, saved, redeemed, delivered and Passover. That's what that means to Israel. And now through Yeshua, that's what it means to the whole world. That connection cannot be torn asunder, but it has been. His last meal, a celebration, there's debate about this. There's debate about everything. Who cares? My opinion, his Seder meal, season of redemption. And there's a twist that I didn't mention last week that just came to me as I was thinking this week. What is the, what is the, when the temple is standing, 
We can't eat it today because we don't have a temple for the sacrifice. What's the traditional or the commanded meat for Shabbat? I mean, for Passover. Lamb, of course, right? You can't eat lamb at a Passover Seder today. Let's just put that out there because everybody wants to do that because they think that's a really cool thing. But you can't because you don't have a temple. What is the standard served meat at an Easter meal? Need we say more in terms of an absolute and total separation from all things God and Jewish? And what were they eating? They were eating lamb. They were eating matzah. They were eating bitter herbs. Why were they doing that? Because God said to do that, and they did it. What were they drinking? The Seder has, has developed over time, and we can't know that they had these four cups, but we know they were drinking wine because Yeshua took one up, didn't he? The four cups and the Seder, I mean, there's a ancient origins of that. But I, I don't know exactly what their Seder looked like, but I know they were drinking wine. Luke 22, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Remember, back to our four cups, the third cup after dinner, the cup of redemption. And Yeshua is saying this so clearly. Remember everything God has done for you from then until now. And with me here now, you have such an unbelievable hope and expectation. And it is in me. It is in this new covenant. And everything he's done in me, he's doing it again. And there's another fourth cup, the hope. When the hour came, he reclined at a table, the apostles with him, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He also says that about drinking wine, which really makes me excited, because you know what? I plan to have a kosher cabernet with Yeshua in the kingdom. And that's where I'm going to ask him certain questions like, why did you make mosquitoes? Why did you why why did that happen? If all things were created through you, mosquitoes? I'm a deep thinker, see? That's first question. This is Messiah. Mosquitoes. I mean, why? Sorry. What's missing here? What's missing in this whole story about Yeshua and the Passover? What's missing is Jesus saying, yeah, you know, hey, here's a cup. This is cool. Don't do this anymore, though. Don't do this. When I leave, I want you to make a totally new way. I want you to get away from all of this stuff. Do it differently. Distance yourself from all this. No, none of that. At your Passover seders, remember me. Remember me. His death, there's so much to say, I don't have time to go into it, but I will say it's very important. And it's, it, this is anecdotal. Pull up that picture of the, of the cross. This is just, I mean, of the door in, in Israel. In Egypt, this, this text that, that where we imagine the cross, right? In the commandment for, for um, what they were supposed to do regarding the blood, you put it on the sides and the lentil, right? 
And so you have it over here and you have it over here and it's up here. And there, see that big hyssop slop of blood across the top of the lintel. You think that just stayed nicely up there or it dripped down onto the ground under there. And so you get this beautiful figure in Egypt of the cross of Messiah, right? And you've probably heard that a hundred times. Hands, head, feet. It's like the door. And that's cool. But John 10, when he says, I am the door, that is cooler. And that's what he says about himself. He is so a part of it. But the point is this. There was never a need to look elsewhere for the messianic significance in the direct connection. No other holiday, no distance needed. The Messiah's connection tells the story. And it is no wonder then that 400 years after this event, people in the church are still wanting to celebrate it. And they're being told, no, you can't. Because there's beauty, there's messianic significance, there's power, there's connection there. And they shouldn't have been told that. So that's, that's the death. But let's, let's move quickly into the life, the resurrection. Because as I said, there are more spring festivals. Yom Habikarim, first fruits. It's mentioned in the text. And it says this, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, and you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Okay? That is the barley harvest for first fruits. <clears throat> a sheaf of the new crop of barley was harvested on the 16th of Nisan. Pesach the 14th, day one Passover the 15th, 16th of Nisan. You might be making a very cool connection there already, three days, uh, but I'll make that clear. So in Israel, through a very celebratory procession, through the streets with, with shouting and all kinds of things, this barley sheaf was waved to say, God is bringing new life. We're honoring God with the new crop of barley. These are the first fruits, and that's agricultural aspect of the festival. But the priests were taking this ripe barley and waving it as this recognition of provision. And this was the first of three harvests, right? We have Yom HaBikarim, we have Shavuot for wheat, we have Sukkot for the ingathering of the, of the fall things. But putting it more spiritually... What we have here is that which was put in the ground when it was planted. The seed apparently now has been resurrected and has created new life, which they harvest, wrap, wave, and say, thank you, God, for provision. And when is that happening? That's happening on the 16th of Nisan. Do you know what day Yeshua resurrected from the grave? Thank you, David. The 16th of Nisan, you see the connection? Which is why Paul would say things like, But now is Messiah risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Right? So Yeshua's in Passover. Yeshua's in first fruits. And of course, last but not least for spring, Shavuot. 
Pentecost as the church knows it. You shall count seven full weeks, and you can read that in Leviticus 23.15. But now we have sort of more first fruits, different first fruits, barley on first fruits, wheat on Shavuot. The Greek name Pentecost, meaning 50th because of the, the days that separate Feast of Unleavened Bread from Shavuot. But what is the significance in the New Testament of Shavuot or Pentecost? What is the, really the only thing that gets noticed in the Christian community on Pentecost is the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? Which is a pretty significant thing. Pretty significant. And we know that they were Jews in Jerusalem, devout men. They were there together, but the day of Pentecost came. They were all together in this place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. What's happening here? We all know the story. Yeshua had ascended. He said, stay in Jerusalem until I send you the power which is going to come through the Holy Spirit, the helper whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance that I said to you. And what are they going to do with that? They're going to receive that power and they're going to go out and they're going to make disciples from all, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So what is happening? Very obvious. Followers of Yeshua and other Jews are having a supernatural encounter with God, just as Yeshua said they would. That was his promise. Fifty days after Passover, there's loud noise, rushing wind and fire, and an awesome outpouring of miraculous communication among these Jews. God is revealing himself in awesome ways with a purpose, a guide, the Holy Spirit. He's going to lead and guide them with this. And man, nothing like that had ever happened before. Had it? Of course it had. On Mount Sinai. And it's an easy connection. And it's so important and so powerful. And so many people have absolutely no clue. On the morning of the third day, this is Exodus 19. This is that Old Testament Torah thing. Where thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast so that all people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out. They took their stand. It was wrapped in smoke. The Lord had descended in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. The mountain trembled greatly. The sound of the trumpet grew louder. Man, that sounds like Jerusalem on Shavuot. Doesn't it? I mean, it was a supernatural outpouring of God's power. And what follows in Judaism, of course, is called Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. Ten Commandments and the Torah in Exodus 20. So what do we have there? Obviously, a supernatural encounter between the Jewish people and God 50 days after Passover, loud noises, flashes of fire, awesome outpouring of communication from heaven to earth, God revealing himself. Man, there we are. There we are. This should at least give us pause when we ask, was Yeshua doing something radically unheard of new? Was he twisting and kicking Judaism off to the side and say, we're doing a new thing? He's operating 
in the blueprint of the biblical festivals. It's just the way it is. It's inarguable. Unarguable. What's the word? Why? The giving of the Holy Spirit on Shavuot directly coincides with the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Why? Because a redeemed people should want to follow God's ways. What was the purpose of Torah? The purpose of Torah was for a redeemed people to know and walk in God's ways that he was giving him. What was the purpose of the Holy Spirit? That a redeemed people, all of them, should know and understand God's word and should follow in his ways. So the Torah at Mount Sinai represents this external giving of Torah. And that Shavuot, now through Yeshua, represents this internal implantation of Torah. And where does that go? That takes us right back to the Passover Seder when he lifted up a cup and said, this is the new covenant. What is the new covenant? It's not the New Testament. It's not a whole new set of rules and regulations. What is it? It's Jeremiah 31 and it's Exodus 36. And what does it promise will happen? I will pour out my spirit and the Torah will be written in your heart. Right? This is, this, is a, this is a sermon for Shavuot, which you've had many times before. But for anyone who doesn't know that, you need to know that. The Torah is at the center of it. And the festivals and Yeshua, they're all in there. And the bottom line... For Messianic Jews and believers in Messiah, we have this instruction manual for life, and it's connected through Yeshua to Mount Sinai to today. We still function with the Holy Spirit and the Torah. So, as Paul says, you know, we failed pretty miserably in that Torah thing. We're, we're doing our best, but we didn't do the greatest job. And Israel is in exile, and all kinds of things have happened. Is that the Torah's fault? No, Paul says it's our fault. But these festivals, when looked at in relation to Yeshua's life, they are helping us through the Torah, giving full meaning to his life. For the Jews, this was all easy to understand. But for Gentiles, now you can understand through the history and the connections, you can understand why Paul wrote what he did in Colossians. Annette, don't let anyone judge you because you are doing these things of God. They are a picture of what is coming. The body of Messiah is the literal text in Colossians. So what I tell you is, don't ever let anyone judge you for upholding the biblical festivals of God. And you can take them right to Colossians 2 and say, you don't know what you're talking... No, don't say that. Say, do you know that there's an actual translation of that text that differs from your interpretation? You can be very nice and then tell them they have a Constantine cross on their front door and get out. <laughs> I love you guys. <sighs> Listen, let's end. Do it. Do this in remembrance of me. That takes on a whole new 
beautiful meaning when you consider the festivals in Yeshua. And these are the spring festivals. This is a microscopically, micron-depth level look at the festivals. We could spend the next five years talking about everything related to just the spring festivals, but we won't do that. They are fulfilled in a certain sense. Each one paints a picture and points to an accomplished aspect of Yeshua's life, right? And so next, we'll talk about the second part of the story. It's our concluding part of the story, and I would say even the more exciting part of the story. Not that our salvation is not pretty doggone exciting, but the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey said, gets even better as we talk about the return of King Messiah, the awaiting fulfillment part. And as you might expect, might, each one of those festivals is tied directly to an action and a result of Messiah Yeshua. So that's where we'll head soon. Yes? Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Let's stand.